0: everybody welcome we're having severe technical problems when it comes to spaces i'm trying again yet now it doesn't seem to well maybe we got up there nope it's not gonna let me in uh my guest today is jeff Deist. he uh is from the mises institute uh and he will talk about amongst other things the history of ludwig von mises Keynes, hayek these famous uh, economic theorists and you know why uh he stays with the mises institute he's actually the president of the mises institute He has previously worked on congressional congressional staff of ron paul a well-known libertarian and there is a very tight connection between libertarianism and the uh mises austrian school so uh you know we're always talking about humans here we've been sort of taking the medical perspective much of the time but i thought it might be interested in to get into homo economicus sort of man in his economic his or her economic or there economic uh, environment and historical sweep. So let's get right to it. Our laws as it pertain to substances are draconian and bizarre. The psychopaths start this way. He was an alcoholic because of social media and pornography, PTSD, love addiction. Fentanyl and heroin, ridiculous. <laughs> I'm a doctor for <laughs> sake, where the hell you think I learned that? You go to treatment before you kill people. I am a clinician. I observe things about these chemicals. Let's just deal with what's real. We used to get these calls on Love Line all the time. Educate adolescents and to prevent and to treat. If you have trouble. You can't stop, and you want to help stop it. I can help. I got a lot to say. I got a lot more to say.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
0: My apologies today. I have been—I uh, was on a Twitter Spaces with a Nario, a Mario Narfall a few minutes ago, and I had to jump off to do this. And once I jumped off, and by the way, I had trouble getting on his spaces because he was inviting me to co-host. Clearly, some glitches over on Twitter Spaces. Uh, and in addition, while I was co-hosting, I couldn't hear anybody talking. So Mario was on me why I wasn't jumping in more because I hadn't couldn't hear a damn thing. I'm still so tr-
2: it says you're still on there, but
0: where over it, it uh, the other one? Yeah,
2: like your your little purple halo is on, and and it says you're in there in that joint. It says join space, but I guess maybe because you're a co-host, you're sort of I permanently am, stuck there. I turned
0: my phone off, <laughs> and we will see. Uh, if <laughs> you want to talk it. to me, get get yeah. on the restream or come over to you're the Rumble Rants, with Mario. Uh, I we will, love you, Mario. I want I want, uh, I want uh, Jeff. Uh, de- uh, I'm sorry. Jeez, uh, I'm so discombobulated. I, I want Jeff Deist <laughs> yeah, for myself technical... <laughs> uh, because, uh, you know, I, I have plenty of questions myself. So here we go. Please welcome Jeff Deist. Jeff, sorry it was such a... Uh, and now I can't hear... There we are. We could barely hear Jeff there for a second. I'm sorry this has been such a upside-down morning here, but uh, thank you for bearing with us.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Good to be here. So
0: let's... Let's. I I want to do a broad sweep a little bit because as we were sort of, marks were warming up here. I noticed that my wife, who has suddenly got some interest in investing and in uh, precious metals and currency, (laughs) currency stability, um, did not know the basic uh, historical figures in much of current, or at least the sort of. Should I call it modern economic theory? Is is it reasonable to put those three figures at the at the top of the page with that? So it'd be. Ludwig von Mises, John Edward Keynes, and uh, what was Hayek's first name? Friedrich Hayek. Friedrich. Uh, these are three gentlemen with very. And I always thought Hayek and Mises were sort of on the same page. But I was. I spoke at a libertarian event one time with several of your organization were there, and I I, I let slip out that I had that misconception before they where they were. We were in an elevator, and I felt the need to run out of the elevator <laughs> for having for having mistakenly put them on the same page. So. Let's have it. Give us a little primer here.
3: Well, if we had to add a fourth, it might unfortunately be Karl Marx on top of all that. But I think if we're talking about where we are today, and we look at the 20th century, there were these sort of two tensions. For most of the 1800s, people saw economics as a discipline where we viewed it as a social science, humans interacting, and we worried about production, right? People want stuff. Economies have to produce goods and services. And then John Maynard Keynes came along in the 1930s and wrote his general theory. And this was an enormously popular book to his credit. This radically changed the whole landscape in academia and amongst professional economists. And basically what came out of what we now call Keynesianism is that, well, you know, you build a productive, healthy economy by stimulating consumption. We have to get people to buy more stuff. Consumption is everything. And the way to get them to buy more stuff is to have more money and credit. And so this has been sort of a tension throughout the 20th century between one camp that says, no, 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 you have to have a productive economy, you have to have profits, you have to have capital investment. And the other side that says, no, 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 we need to have government stimulus, either monetary policy or fiscal policy to get people to buy more stuff. And in a sense, that's still where we are today. But if we look at governments, if we look at Western governments, uh, clearly in in a perverse sense, I think Keynes has won. Uh, at least in the short term. In in other words, most Western governments think it's their job to get their citizens to buy more stuff. And that if they buy and borrow more, that'll produce a healthier economy. I I think we have to challenge that. And I think the the role of gold in the financial system uh, helps to serve as a warning against that. But nonetheless, we live in an era where uh, the idea of stimulus, the idea of creating more demand is at least at the governmental level, the, the animating force in economics. Well,
0: it seems to me though, that uh, the one thing that the sort of practical matter that differentiates uh, the two philosophies uh, is debt. Is, is, that, is that safe to say? That Keynes is very, the, the, the you know, uh, sovereign debt is sort of looked at as the magic potion that makes economies run and I would imagine Mises and certainly uh, Hayek was always thought of, and I'm, I'm being grossly oversimplistic, but I always thought of it as in terms of they they took the position that it's more you know how your household runs that should be how a government runs that uh, essentially save the currency and the banking and these other things that make it more complex, but ultimately, much like a household, a government should pay its pay its bills, not carry too much debt. Accumulate a certain amount of savings and you know invest in itself
3: well and that was certainly the view for the the first half of american history other than during the civil war period america generally did not have national debts and it was really up until world war one when the amount of debt the u.s government had tripled Basically, from 1914 to 1917, they were selling war bonds, and this was the idea was that, hey, we're all part of this war effort. So that was absolutely the thinking, and I think even Calvin Coolidge embraced that thinking. Now, today, there's a very different mindset, and this isn't just something that's on the left. I mean, if you recall, Dick Cheney, during the W years, famously said, well, we've proven that debt doesn't matter. When people were challenging all the expenses of going into Iraq and Afghanistan and all the deficit spending, uh, and of course,
0: very scary. On the
3: on, on the left, uh, there's a whole uh, new school of thought called MMT, Modern Monetary Theory, which basically says you can have unlimited sovereign debt unless you get hyperinflation in the economy. So there are certainly people like Paul Krugman who may be among, I, I would argue, is among the most the top five most famous economists today. He writes for the New York Times. Uh, Paul Krugman essentially says government debt doesn't matter. I think that's profoundly Wrong, I think it'll have tremendous uh, bad ramifications for this country. The question is just when those ramifications come, how long they can be put off. And so if it's beyond one's own lifetime, then uh, like John Maynard Keynes says, you know, in the, in the long run, we're all dead. Uh, so it, it, I suppose it depends on your philosophy. But if your philosophy uh, includes caring about future generations of Americans, then I think we have to look at it.
0: And- you know, let's let's talk quickly about gold, if we could. Um, now, Susan, for the thing about gold, how much Susan I want you into this conversation that's something you were interested in, is that it used to be our our currency, or everybody's currency to some extent, was was bound to gold. Sure. Uh, do you Do you understand that? right? Of course. And in the I was se- a history major. Right. And in the seventies, we I think it was Richard Nixon that that sort of un, unleashed uh, a floating currency. And that seems to have worked. Uh, But gold has still been the repository of last resort. And uh, even so far as, because Susan and I both, our families come from the old country, I'm familiar with people talking about uh, burying gold coins in the backyard. That uh, they would literally do that, <laughs> because because that was the last resort when you lost everything. At least when the when they came for you, at least you knew you had the gold coins buried under the house or something. Um,
2: As a bargaining chip to get out of out of the or, or, country quick.
0: Well, that's what they might use it for to get away. That kind of thing. But but it still has that quality to it, which is kind of extraordinary. And it, and its historical sweep. It, it's always been like that, is it not?
3: Well, the historical sweep is almost unimaginable. Uh, I mean, people have been using gold as money for at least 2,500 years, pre-Christian times. The Roman Republic uh, certainly introduced gold coins. And, and if you fast forward all the way to today, as you say, I mean, people still view gold as some sort of store of value as an emergency. Uh, people have been known under dire circumstances when they're forced to flee a country for political reasons, famine, war, etc., cetera, uh, to have wearable, Gold jewelry, uh, you know, around their neck or around mm-hmm. their wrist, uh, to transport a lot of wealth with them, you know, along with maybe just the clothes on their backs in one suitcase. I mean, this is this has uh, been something throughout history, but but for most of human history, uh, money wasn't paper. For most of human history, uh, money was some sort of commodity, and in er- early days, it was things like salt and seashells and and even certain stones, and then eventually gold was discovered along with silver. And it turns out that, that what distinguishes gold from any other metal, any of the precious metals, any of all the industrial metals you can think of, like silver and platinum that people use, is it just has this really unique chemical properties. It basically can't be destroyed. So it changes form, you can melt it down, but it, it, it never really goes away. So virtually all the gold that ever existed on earth is still with us today, it hasn't been consumed in industrial uses, and, you know, it might've uh, sunk to the bottom of the ocean on a Spanish galleon ship or something like that. But for the most part, we still have all the gold ever mined out of the ground. So it's it's just this totally indestructible uh, form of metal. And over the years, some is that that quality, along with the fact that it was fairly scarce, it's it's actually very difficult, even today with our modern processes, to find it under the ground and then pull it out. It's a hellishly expensive, uh, process. So be, because of that, the the marketplace, which is nothing more than human beings over thousands of years, eventually began to choose gold as a way to, to transact and and uh, transfer value between people. Because we all know that you know barter is no good. If you have a cow and I have some wheat and we want to trade, that's a very difficult thing to do. Uh, whereas gold was divisible and you could create coins and other ways to make this all possible. So it wasn't really until governments and central banks got involved and started issuing paper based on that gold that was easier to exchange than to move gold from one bank to another to sort of satisfy an IOU. It was when governments and central banks started issuing paper uh, that the mischief came in. And that really uh, started around World War I. And as you mentioned, by 1971, when Richard Nixon made it so that even foreigners couldn't redeem their US dollars for gold anymore, that we entered this, this era uh, this Paul Krugman era of really unlimited government spending because government and central banks can create unlimited amounts of of paper currency. And of course, most of that's digital, electronic now, but nonetheless, we can call it currency. They can create this at will. You can't just create gold at will. So that's the fundamental difference.
0: And giving the governments that power has a tremendous uh, potential to do harm. I'm, I'm sure certainly from the Mises perspective, right?
3: almost unbelievable, almost unfathomable. And we're not just talking about economics here. We're not just talking about financial matters. We're talking about widespread cultural, social, foreign policy matters, all are hugely affected. When when you have a government that can spend wildly beyond what it takes in in taxes. And let's remember, let's take the COVID year of 2020. The government brought in about three and a half trillion dollars in federal taxes from all sources. It spent seven, okay? So it spent twice what it brought in in taxes. And so you say, well, gee whiz, Dr. Drew, if if the government only needs 50% of its spending in taxes to operate, how about 30%, how about 20%, how about 10? Why are we paying taxes at all? Why can't they just finance this indefinitely? And and the corrosive effects of this I mean, the, yeah. the, you can't even begin to to imagine how this filters through society. And, and from my perspective anyway, it's been uh, a, a cultural disaster for America. In other words, it has made us have a desire to live today at the expense of tomorrow. And if you do that on an individual level, if you do that on a more widespread level, if you do that on a national level, and then ultimately an in international level, uh, that means that we are basically spending the capital that we ought to be accumulating, and bequeathing to future generations.
0: Didn't the Bible have injunctions against this? I, I, it sounds like the kind of thing that, right? I mean, that would be as that yes. that old well, as a as a f- philosophical position.
3: I, I'm going to go out on the on a limb and say that the uh, staff at the U.S. Treasury and the U.S. Federal Reserve Bank are not particularly animated by biblical principles in 2023. I, I'm sure of
0: that I, I'm sure yeah, of that. So you're 100 uh, right. And, and so does does that I, does the does Mises Institute take position on these things? Do they offer position papers, advice? Do people listen, or do you just you know are you writing journalistic kinds Absolutely. of articles to try to get people to persuade it? Yeah.
3: In other words. Well, for one thing, we, we absolutely uh, advocated gold standard, which is what a lot of the Western world had throughout most of the 1800s, and, and again, into about the World War One period. And that was actually, they call it the, the Gilded Age in Europe, the Belle Epoque. And it, it, it not coincidentally, in my view, uh, co- was part and parcel of basically the greatest and fastest period of human achievement in terms of science, literature, art, music, uh, all kinds of cultural elements. And I, and I would argue that that was because we had a form of sound money, a, a form of money that government couldn't tinker with, that government couldn't just produce uh, willy-nilly. So when we, we got rid of that, basically what we did was we created a political seduction for the political class. In other words, once you were unleashed from this need to have sound money and to actually tax people to do all the things you want to do, that created the circumstances where we could have things like beginning in the 1930s, just a, a couple of decades after the creation of this central bank, we could have all of the New Deal programs, which were tremendously expensive. You fast forward to the 1960s, we could have all of Lyndon Johnson's Great Society programs. We could prosecute the, the World War II. We could prosecute the war in Vietnam. Uh, you know, we could have spending beyond our means. And now, uh, because what the government does and what the central bank does, affects the credit markets for normal people like us, uh, that's also filtered down to where the cost of borrowing money is, in my opinion, cheaper than it would be without all this tinkering. And so it's not just government that lives beyond its means. As a result of this, as a result of a relentless, many decades long pressure on, on interest rates, making them lower and lower and lower, Americans do all kinds of things in response. They buy bigger houses than they would otherwise they drive fancier cars than they would they take nicer vacations their kids go to more expensive colleges and take out bigger student loans it's really again a cultural and and social issue and, and when you corrupt the money of a country i would argue that you're in in a sense you're corrupting the soul of it you're corrupting the culture itself how, how in the world would you get back to the
0: gold standard from where we are
3: well, there's there's a few ways you could do it. Uh, one, and, and a lot of people argue for this, is that uh, pr- presumably Bitcoin or some kind of cryptocurrency is going to become the canary in the coal mine because Western governments are going to just keep spending uh, and borrowing to such an extent that at some point, people are just not going to trust them anymore. They're not going to be willing to buy treasury debt except at junk bond rates or something like that. And so people are going to worry about hyperinflation and they are going to be looking for an alternative to store their wealth in something other than dollars. Uh, Right now, if you're very wealthy, if you're Bill Gates, if you're Warren Buffett, you can have property all over the world, you can have assets denominated in foreign currencies like Swiss francs or Chinese renminbi, and you can somewhat protect yourself, you can diversify jurisdictionally against some sort of hyperinflation or collapse in the US dollar. But most of us, our paychecks, our savings, our wealth, our homes, all these are denominated in dollars. So you could view something like Bitcoin as a potential safe harbor in the future, but you could also say, well, gold never went away. Central banks still hold tons and tons of it. There's a $12 trillion market worldwide. And with with digital division now, we have the ability to have physical gold, but trade it amongst each other, use it as money, using the equivalent of a debit card, let's say. And so gold could once again reassert itself in terms of its moneyness. Now, the question is not one of whether we have the technical ability to do this. The the question is one of whether governments, including our own, will literally use force, will literally pass laws to prevent that and come send people with guns and put you in jail if you do. That's that's a political question, but the idea that we could use gold or Bitcoin uh, as money is not a technical problem. We know how to do that.
0: Well, but I I feel like you're describing kind of a, a doomsday situation where things get so bad. There's nothing you you have to go somewhere for a safe haven, and I I I don't. I, I was really surprised to hear you say gold or Bitcoin. <laughs> that sort of surprised me. Explain explain how Bitcoin could be a safe haven well, given its wild fluctuations.
3: Right. I think you. I think Bitcoin has a lot of maturing to do. And I'm not sure that that's so soon. And I think a doomsday scenario is is correct. In other words, I don't predict the dollar collapsing or devaluing rapidly relative to other currencies anytime soon. And there's a a whole host of reasons for that, geopolitical and otherwise. We're still the biggest economy in the world. We're still the biggest, baddest military. You still basically clear international transactions by oil using dollars. So there's all kinds of, of factors which are very bullish for the dollar. And the dollar's done well since COVID against other currencies. But here's the thing is, as Americans, unless you're trading currencies, which is not for the faint of heart, we shouldn't care about how the dollar stands relative to other currencies. We should care about how the dollar stands relative to the goods and services, the stuff we actually want to buy and need to buy. And that's where it's not doing so well. That's where it's losing 8% a year.
0: but, but, But hold on. I mean... The the reason, it seems to me, humbly, that we worry about the dollar's worth relative to other uh, currencies is this has been a global market for some time now. We've been getting a lot of cheap stuff from China, and it's been good for us with a strong dollar.
3: It's been great for us. Uh, it, we've been exporting our inflation. Uh, we've been getting real stuff at Walmart from China mm-hmm. in exchange for dollars that are worth about 8% less every year. In trade, so you're absolutely right. I can't, I can't disagree with that. But again, even the cheap stuff from Walmart is getting less cheap. Um yeah. and Here's what we can say about. Well, gold. and, and we're, we're.
0: Yeah, go ahead. Gold.
3: Well, so gold started 2022 at about 1,800 bucks an ounce. It ended at about 1,800 bucks an ounce. It's now up closer to 2,000. So while most assets, certainly stocks and bonds, were losing. 15, 20%, maybe more over the course of the year, gold was was relatively stable. So that in and of itself, I think, speaks to the idea uh, of the stability, which you mentioned, which is certainly lacking uh, in Bitcoin. But yes, I, I do think that the idea of a dollar collapse is probably somewhat far off. And I do, I don't, I don't love saying this, but I do agree that I think as long as things are relatively okay with the dollar and we don't have any kind of, really nasty hyperinflation, I don't think there's going to be the political will uh, to return to a gold standard or, or to learn from the lessons right. of history. But nonetheless, right. I, 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 think you're, I think we have to learn.
0: Yeah, I think your story is that, you know, humans don't do things till they have to. And you're sort of predicting them running to gold when they have to, when it looks, you know, when the, it it's, it's it's homo economicus we we it's it's why you know i don't know if you guys you must have positions on this because you have positions on everything it's one of the reasons i'm so um uh, concerned about how we're approaching energy uh we we seem to ignore economic economics when it comes to energy r- rather than saying hey let 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 the fossil fuel get used up do the best you can to mitigate get some carbon capture going Uh, until it becomes so expensive that economically it becomes advantageous to invest in all these other things, and then people will. They will just simply take over all the green energy, and then that's that. Uh, But they Mm -hmm. seem to want to jump ahead of the economics, or human economics, and that never works.
3: Well, more than jump ahead, ignore it. I mean, for example, we're so far off from having an electrical grid that could handle an electric car in every household in this country. I mean, that is just yeah. an absolute pipe dream. The idea that we're not going to use coal yeah. or, or natural gas or oil in just a few decades. Um, it, but I would argue that this doesn't come from a particular economics as, as it does just from economics denialism. I mean, I, I happen to have read yeah. a lot about the history of money and gold because it interests me. And because of that, I worry. Be, you know, there are cautionary tales in history periods in in time and and these aren't all remote i mean we can go back and look at argentina late 90s we can go back and look at at rhodesia now zimbabwe in the 70s and 80s i mean we have to go that far back we can go look at venezuela just in recent history and say this really hurts people this has real world consequences but a lot of americans think that economics is not real that there are no laws of economics, that legislatures or central banks can just sort of command things or adjust things as a policy matter, and that we don't have to worry about this. We can, you know, If we want a higher minimum wage, we just pass a law. If we want uh, gasoline to not cost too much, we put a, a price ceiling on it. If we want everybody to use green energy, we just tax oil, uh, it, it, and this is just, it's just economics denialism, and that, that is, is something that yeah. I, I think we have to fight against.
0: Yeah, I, I was speaking to someone who was the, uh, literally the budget director, this was a while ago, but the budget director for the state of California. And uh, she was complaining about, it was a time when there was significant debt and they had all these expenses and what they were going to do. And I go, well, what are you going to do? And she goes, well, we can't print money. And I go, yeah. And she goes, but the federal government can print money. They just need to print more money and give it to us. And I th- I was like, oh, it was like breathtaking. <laughs> this, yeah. is the, this is the chairman of the budgetary committee. So people l- live in that world where that's how they imagine uh, economics to work. I, I That was to me a breathtaking realization that we have people in government, in leadership, thinking that way, it was the most frightening thing ever. But, it, but the good news is, bad news also, is that when it comes to economics, reality has a way of asserting itself, coming to bear. And in California in particular, we are on the eve of some real coming to Jesus sorts of experiences, I suspect.
3: Well, why doesn't Sacramento just issue state bonds to pay for the choo-choo train from Fresno to Sacramento or wherever the hell it goes? Uh, The -hmm. the reason is because nobody would buy them. And she's absolutely right. Mm-hmm. That's the difference between states and Uncle Sam. And, and frankly, she's entirely rational to imagine that the ultimate backstop of her state of California's own profligacy is, is Uncle Sam because it always has been. Look at COVID. State governments got huge amounts of money. City and municipal and county governments got huge amounts of money, direct money. I mean, cash money into their bank accounts, newly created uh, during especially, well, during two stimulus bills, one passed under Trump and one passed under Biden to the tune of about six yeah. trillion bucks. So um, she's right in a sense.
0: When you think about it. So let's try to bring it to the present moment. Uh, so the Fed has their current, what what the uh, Fed chairman calls job to do, which is to try to get the uh, fund rate down to 2%, the... the uh, Inflation down to 2%. And they are continuing to crank up the rates. Uh, They seem, I'm I'm sure you heard the news conference with the Fed chairman. Uh, He seemed uh, thoughtful, but uh, narrow uh, vision in terms of his view of the landscape. In other words, he kept, the idea that they could go too far and seriously break something Mm -hmm. Uh, his, he really did not seem like a real potential to him if I was reading him correctly. And it was kind of interesting to me that one of the things he talked about, again, I don't know all the specific terminology you guys use, but it was a, it was a price index. Uh, was it consumer price index? It was uh, excluding services or something had dropped rather precipitously, very suddenly lately. And I thought, Gosh, whenever you see a delta accelerating, you, you should have uh, a, a good deal of caution moving forward. You should at least uh, at least pay attention. And he, his position was, "Oh yeah, it's very rapid change. We don't expect that to continue." So anyway, and it's like, mm-hmm. "Whoa, you don't expect?" Uh, yeah, I don't. I hope hope you're right, but it, it, this is how you get into these these spirals that you have trouble getting out
3: of. Well, let's think about that. He's a brilliant guy. And I think a, a well-meaning guy, Jerome Powell. But the agreed, idea that agreed. we, or, or at least the, the financial press watches with with bated breath for his next pronouncement, he's going to tell us about interest rates and their goals and their targets. And, and what he's talking about at the end of the day are two things. One is the supply of money, supply and demand like any other good or service. Money's a commodity or it's supposed to be. It's not supposed to be a government uh, issued tool. So one, supply and two, interest rates, which is, for lack of better, we would you say is the price of money, the, the what it costs you to go out and borrow money, let's say, buy a home. And so when we're watching all this, it just strikes me, most of us think, well, yeah, America is basically a free market country. We're a capitalist country. We don't have a centrally... Planned economy like the former Soviet Union, but what if we had press conferences where instead of Jerome Powell, it was some secretary coming on and saying, you know, this is this is how many bushels of wheat we're going to produce this year in the U.S. We're going to direct the farmers to do this. Oh, and here's how many cars uh, Detroit's going to produce, and here this is going to be the hourly mm-hmm. wage of the worker in Detroit, and this is this is going to be how much a, a, a two thousand square foot house cost. We, we would. We would look at that We'd say, No, no, no! The market provides us with houses and with automobiles and with bushels of wheat. That's that's supply and demand. The market figures that out, and 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 capitalism is what makes us rich. So how come we don't have that same perspective when it comes to money? I mean, I, I consider the Fed a very spooky organization. I don't want I don't want my economy centrally planned, and half of it is because you've got a good and service on one side of every equation. You can look at that like a new Honda Accord. And judge the quality. Maybe do some research. Decide if you want to buy it. On the other hand of that equation is the U.S. dollars that you're exchanging for it. Does Honda look at the quality of those dollars? Do they look at that and say, "Wow, you know, what's this Jerome Powell guy doing? We maybe we have to raise the price of the Accord a little bit to uh, to compensate for this risk we're taking because we think this dollar we're getting is devaluing eight percent a year. I, I mean, it really is very anti-capitalist at the end of the day to have central planning of money. And that's what we've got. And look, he's up against it. It, it. If you raise interest rates, the conventional thinking is that, well, that slows down the economy, both businesses and individuals borrow less. Makes sense, right? We, we demand less of something that costs more. And as a result of that, uh, prices begin to drop because demand begins to drop. Because let's face it, so much of what businesses and individuals buy in this world, they buy on credit. Okay, that's conventional thinking. That's all well and good. But the, the flip side of that is, of course, uh, by raising interest rates, you're, you're making uh, marginal corporations that have a lot of debt. You're putting them on the edge. They might go bankrupt. They might not be able to make it in the new environment. Then that might reduce supply. You're probably putting some people out of work. I mean, generally speaking, uh, when we're trying to fight inflation, that results in more unemployment, I mean, it's just this impossible situation. And what what Jerome Powell inherited was decades and decades and decades, basically four decades from 1982 until 2022 of relentlessly lower interest rates. And I really think, you know, for your listeners that we are in a new turning. In other words, 2022 marks an absolute turning point in the U.S. economy and that in the future for many, many decades, we should expect Higher interest rates and higher inflation—that the, the the go-go days of the last four decades are over. So he's not
0: going to get to that two percent.
3: I don't think we're going to have two percent consumer price inflation this decade. No way. That's my opinion. Yeah, that's
0: that's his goal. He might break things trying to get there, and uh, that that's very it's very interesting. Now it, we have been essentially discussing sort of economic philosophy slash economic history, right? There are people, say at University of Chicago, that believe really the, the 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 thing about economics is it's just mathematical models. It's more like physics. Mm-hmm. You just build the right model, and then you can predict, you know, how things are going to move, and uh, you know how to how to you know what buttons to push to get things to go in the right direction, what levers to push, so to speak. Um, we're not going to talk about that. I I find I find that kind of boring because there's so much interesting history and, and philosophy around economics. I have to take a little break. When I get back, I want to bring in our friend Adam Smith. And and actually, I don't really know Mises' relationships with Adam Smith, how how close that relationship is or or is not. It might be interesting. And I'd like to kind of expose people to some of uh, Adam Smith's uh, genius, if you don't mind. You up for that?
3: Absolutely. You bet.
0: All right. Be right, right back after this. Not sure how to say I love you this Valentine's Day? Well, nothing says I love you more than a few minutes of relaxation. And Genucel skincare does just that. Gives you the luxury gift of feeling like you spent the entire day in the spa, all while, in fact, in the comfort of your own home. Susan loves to feel pampered and special, especially on Valentine's Day. So why not relax with a detoxifying mask and feel amazing after only one use?
2: I am a snob when it comes to using products on my face. The dermatologist makes a ton of money from me. But when I was introduced to Genucell, I was so happy because it's so affordable and it works great. I was introduced to the Ultra Retinol Cream, which I love at night. All the eye creams are amazing. People notice my skin all the time, and I'm so excited because it's actually working.
0: GenuCell's mask works wonders by pulling out all of your imperfections to make you feel refreshed and looking like you just stepped out of a facial appointment. Order the Dr. Drew package today and try this amazing mask for free. That's right. Every single Dr. Drew and Susan package includes a free mask to celebrate you and your loved one on this Valentine's Day. Go to GenuCell.com dot com slash drew and enter code drew for an extra 10 percent off your entire purchase plus all orders are upgraded to priority shipping for free that's genucel.com slash drew g-e-n-u-c-e-l dot com slash d-r-e-w my guest is philip patrick he is a precious metal specialist trains at university of redlands he has spent years as a wealth manager at citigroup and his current position is with birch gold group so, gold has always been uh, somewhat of a safe haven, particularly in times of great turmoil, uh, much like our present moment, I imagine. Gold has always traditionally been a safe haven asset. Gold specifically has has always been about wealth preservation, right gold has it always held its buying power. You can look at as far back as you'd like in history. In biblical times, one ounce of gold would buy somebody 400 loaves of bread. And today it does the same thing. So it's a store of value. But I would say in times like this, as you mentioned, it's particularly important when you're dealing with things like 40-year high inflation, uh, you know, the air that's coming out of a stock market bubble. These times in particular tend to drive gold and silver up quite significantly. If things are different the solution needs to be different as well so i encourage everyone to get informed and we
3: have a lot of good information here to help your listeners
0: just a reminder i am not a financial advisor and i do not give out financial advice nor investing advice birch gold has an a plus rating with the better business bureau countless five-star reviews and thousands of satisfied customers check them out now visit birchgold.com slash drew and secure your future with gold do
1: it now
0: and we're back. we're back with jeff dyce from the mises institute and we were about to talk about uh, a well uh, a gentleman uh, part of the scottish enlightenment who is actually originally a moral philosopher before he came up with his uh, wealth of nations and people have all kinds of strong feelings about adam smith but forget the fact that he was actually a moral philosopher. he would have described himself as a moral mm-hmm. philosopher and uh, he has a famous phrase uh, it sort of summarizes his moral philosophy, is which is that men uh, desire to be not only loved but to be lovely, in other words, liked admired in the eyes of others. And he has this extraordinary book where he talks about, amongst other things, how the manufacturing of, say, a sailor's peacoat could, you know, be the price it is, given the extraordinary steps it goes through. Uh, and I think what was it the manufacturing pins was his other thing. How, how it is we're able to manufacture pins with greater efficiency, given the way we conduct our economies. But I'll tell me about little Adam Smith and a little relationship with Mises.
3: Well, it, it's so it's great that his book is called Wealth of Nations. I mean, it's an absolutely staggering book. And earlier you mentioned the idea of technical economists who viewed things in a formulaic or mathematical. Way. Well, Adam Smith was coming at this in the original way. and As you mentioned, the idea that this is a social science. As a matter of fact, the idea of an economist as a standalone discipline didn't really exist until the 20th century. Throughout the 1900s, people who studied economics thought that they were viewing, uh, studying human relationships, and this was all related to sociology and philosophy and even logic. Uh, it wasn't until the 20th century that we started to think of economics as this discipline and it got infected with the methods of the hard sciences. You mentioned physics. Well, in physics, we can observe phenomena in nature. We can develop a hypothesis, and then we can go test it empirically, and we can retest it, and we can try to prove or disprove it because nature has uh, properties. does
0: not have gendered
3: Which, repeat, Keep going. Uh, nature has nature has molecules and atoms and gravity and, and forces like that. But human beings are different. Human beings are irrational characters. Human beings have uh, self-interest and greed and lust and anger and hatred and all kinds of things that drive us. So when we're studying humans interacting, whether that's political science or sociology or economics, we're in a very different place. I think, I think Adam Smith's combination of, as, as you put, it, moral philosophy with understanding uh, what we do and, and, and how we do it and why we do it you know, calling his book The Wealth of Nations, nobody in economics writes like that today. That, that's the question before right. us. Right. We're all worried. How, how did America get so rich? What if it all went away? Could, could we screw this up? And the answer is yes. Right. And those are the kind of big picture questions that Adam Smith is asking. Today, you know, you get this double speak from someone like Jerome Powell. It doesn't even seem like they're asking the right questions.
0: What, what question would you ask?
3: I would say, how did we get rich in the West? Is it magic dirt? Are we somehow smarter? Do we have just some sort of magic cooperative process? No, we had a healthy degree of property rights. We had a healthy degree of the rule of law. And we had an understanding, sort of a a social contract that generations would want to accumulate and save and put money away for future generations. And that's made us basically the the wealthiest most long lived people in the history of the world and i think we ought to understand that think about that worry about that and try to preserve that and improve upon that for future generations those are the questions is how do human beings get together and cooperate socially you know government is laws and force and guns and prison at the end of the day markets our human cooperation, markets are voluntary. I, I think that is, is something that's that's worthy of study and I think it needs to be viewed in the broader context of, of philosophy, logic, uh, reasoning like Adam Smith did, not in this mathematical or statistical way of just you know, collecting data and viewing human beings as aggregates. We're not aggregates, that's not how we're, we're wired. <laughs> Is, our,
0: our, well, is the position of uh, Ludwig von Mises essentially a libertarian position?
3: Well, I would say it is a liberal position in, in the way that that word was used right up until the beginning Plascal. of the 20th century. Yes. In, in 19th liberal. century, understa- absolutely. Understanding of liberalism was basically a government is liberal. It's liberal versus strict is like a parent who is liberal versus strict. It generally allows uh, a broad degree of laissez-faire in the economy. It attempts to have non-aggression with respect to its neighbors. And uh, it has sound money to to allow people to save for a rainy day. I mean, that was the idea of liberalism right up until, I, I would say it's during the 1930s and FDR when that word really started to become perverted into sort of a big government program. And that's when people, began to use the term classical liberalism. So that's and that's certainly uh, a relative, an ancestor of modern day libertarianism, no question.
0: And what is the relationship between Mises and Hayek?
3: Well, uh, ha- Hayek's a German, Mises is an Austrian. They both uh, are superstars in what we call the Austrian school of economics, was which was again, part of that pre-Keynesian world where people thought production mattered more than consumption. And so they had different focuses, Hayek's brilliance was that he brought us the idea of of spontaneous order, the idea that no human being or group of humans, I mentioned a Politburo, deciding how how many bushels of wheat to produce for the coming year, that, that no group of humans could have all the knowledge at their fingertips that markets naturally give us through their operations. And so we need to, uh, reduce the role and power of government because otherwise they'll screw everything up and the marketplace needs to be the main driver of our economy within, you know, a, a set of rules and laws and property rights and that sort of thing. So Hayek's idea of spontaneous order is is just a, it's, it's a tremendous challenge to the whole 20th century because the 20th century, you know, both the, the terrible uh, things which happened in the former Soviet Union and in China, but then also the socialism which happened across the West; those were all based on the opposite premise that we need to have centralized c- control over the economy.
0: Yeah, so it's the distributed information, right? Uh, and I, you know, one of the lessons of COVID is how destructive it can be when medicine becomes overly centralized, as opposed to giving the authority and the information flow to come from the unit of the physician or nurse and the patient uh, that becomes an insignificant relation or an ins- insignificant source of information and some bureaucratic structure gets put on top of it and it is incredibly destructive. How How is it that we can't seem to learn the lesson that centralization and totalitarian and forcing is inefficient and and and, and especially when it's guided by ideology has sort of infinite capacity to do human harm
3: well it's just a political seduction there's always a a parasitical or predatory class in any society and some predators go into street crime or uh, you know at at a lower level and some uh, predators go into professional crime at at the higher level of government. So it is part of human nature. It's just something we have to guard against. It's something we have to constantly warn against and we have to learn the lessons of history. I would say that there is a a bit of a silver lining if we can find one to the the centralization of medical authority during COVID. And Mm. and that is that from from my perspective anyway, I, I think for example, the WHO, the UN, Uh, The the American CDC, they were really unable to project authority worldwide. We found pretty quickly that countries sort of broke apart and acted on on their own interests rather than following one international uh, playbook when it comes to COVID. And even here in the US, we saw disparities amongst the 50 states and the 50 governors in terms of their approach to COVID. Some were very locked down, some were more open. Some were almost draconian like China, like the city of San Francisco. So I love the idea that there was, that we have a little bit of a laboratory, a real world experiment during COVID. And I, in my opinion, uh, the, the, uh, the states and the countries that were more open, like Sweden, uh, like Florida, like Singapore uh, ac- actually demonstrated that, Uh, the the folly of of following along with all of the lockdowns and the CDC guidelines and the the masking and all that. But uh, look, this is always the struggle. This is always the struggle. The the history of the 20th century in terms of the political story, the political story of the 20th century was centralization. Things that used to be decided locally became regional, were decided at the state level, increasingly decided in Washington, D.C., increasingly decided by one Supreme Court. And then increasingly decided at the international level by the UN, by organizations like the IMF, by, by the World Bank. Uh, so that was the story of the 20th century. It's not a story I like, but, but it's the reality. I, I'm very hopeful. I'm, I'm very optimistic that the story of the 21st century is, is going to be a decentralist story, breaking away from that. Um, and, and I'd love to see a, a, a far greater degree of diversity and sovereignty around the world.
0: Ha, ha, where is the evidence for that other than I guess what you're saying and the, the fact that there were states and breakaway countries and things and to some extent people did their own thing, but I, I guess maybe I lived in a state that was so draconian and as you said, it was not like China. It was specifically like Ooh. China and modeled after China because they had been hoodwinked by Chinese scientists that this was the way to go and how they could have fallen for that is just beyond imagination. But But there we are. So. So you're optimistic about the future. Would that be accurate?
3: I'm optimistic long-term, absolutely.
0: How about shorter and immediate term?
3: (laughs) Well, I think the next 10 years are going to be rough. And as to your early point, I hope, we all hope, we don't want some catastrophic condition in America to provide the impetus for change. We don't want a terrible, you know, a terrorist event, a terrible economic crash or dollar depreciation, another pandemic, uh, some kind of civil, war or some kind of a breakaway movement. I mean, none, none of us want that. The idea is not to be have some Mad Max scenario where we can plant our flag on top of the pile of rubble and say, you know, we were right. Look, we were telling you that you couldn't print money forever. That That's not the goal. <laughs> uh, the the goal is, I think, to create understanding and awareness here. But I'm absolutely convinced that America's too big. Uh, 330 million people. We see the rancor and the division in this country. I, I think we absolutely need to have a far greater degree of political separation, subsidiarity. You know, maybe outright secession is just a non-starter or a pipe dream. Okay, maybe that's above my pay grade, but we can certainly have a far greater degree of federalism. We're already seeing this since COVID. We're seeing people voting with their feet. We're, We're seeing different policies. Between different governors, and I, you know, on the when it comes to the social issues, I mean, I tend to focus on the on the money and banking and the the economics. But when it comes to these terrible social issues, Dr. Drew, can we just say, you know, we're probably not going to solve abortion. We're not probably not going to create one national viewpoint on guns, uh, on uh, you know, trans and drag queen story hour. All these things which are so divisive in society, CRT. You know the escape valve for all this, the release valve for all this is federalism. It's allowing uh, people to have different rules in different states, to have less decided in Washington D.C. at the Supreme Court and more decided at the state and local level. And I think this offers a lot of benefit to progressives too. I mean, I, I'm obviously consider myself a person on the right, but I, you know, I, I think there's there's room to deal here. I I I lived in California for many many years, my home state. I I don't. I don't want people to wake up in California and and feel like they have to worry about who is the senator from the the state of Alabama. I mean, that strikes me as a crazy system. It strikes me as as inherently divisive. And if we just get back to following a more federalist system, it's laid out in the Constitution, it's in the 10th Amendment, I think we'd have a a, a greater degree of respect and empathy for between these these, uh, different red and blue areas in the country.
0: Yeah, it is interesting how much our, you know, individual states is this one little sort of magical ingredient that our country has. That very few places really have anything quite as as well developed as that. Where each state has a constitution or a commonwealth and uh, elected officials. It, it it's it's different than principalities and different than all, so many other countries. You literally, if you go all the way down the Jeffersonian uh, logic, you can have you know almost independent little. Countries, as long as you know you, the federal government is controlling the state commerce and the things that it's supposed to control. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is it it has it just keeps getting the the centralized stuff just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Does the should the for instance? Let me ask this: Should there be a federal reserve?
3: Oh, absolutely not. Um, I, I consider that all downside, no upside, whatsoever. I think money is absolutely something that the marketplace can handle and provide just like cars or shoes or or anything else. Now, obviously, there'd have to be a transitional period, but to me, that's an absolute no-brainer.
0: Would you have some sort of national bank or something? Would there be anything else to replace it?
3: Well, that was the idea. If you go back and look at the history of the Fed, it was designed to be a backstop. It was designed to be a banker's bank. It was there, at least ostensibly, to prevent, bank failures in dire circumstances, ultimately to protect the, the the, the the shareholders and the depositors. lender,
0: lender, lender of last resort.
3: Absolutely. That was, that was interesting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I originally, i am not originally, I recently read a, uh, firsthand account of the depression in, I think it was Cleveland or some Ohio city and, um, might not have been Cleveland and it was written by a lawyer and, uh, I guess when I ask you the question about the Federal Reserve Chairman and the sort of unwinding that's going on now, you, you really you need to read the firsthand accounts to appreciate how things, when they really uh, unwind, it, it's, it, it, how low is low is a question that you're asking yourself every day for a long time. Uh, he, you know, he kept talking in, in this diary, I forget what it was called. It was, it, but it was, uh, you know, he just go, Oh no, another bank failed. Well, oh, that must be the last one. We're going to be okay. And then, Oh, another two more fail. Then things would stabilize and people would get back in and start speculating again, the way they did in what caused the original unwinding. And then of course there'd be another leg down. Uh, and, and I don't think people have a sense of what that is and how, how that can happen.
3: Well, it was a very scary time. No question about it, but I think we have to look at the performance of the Fed since then. I mean, we've had uh, booms and busts throughout now more than a hundred years of central banking in the United States. So how do, how do we judge a success Has your dollar held its purchasing power uh, over the last 50 years? I mean, arguably it has not at all. So. The the question is always, you know, how what's the unseen? What would things have looked like in the absence of the Fed? What would things look like if we actually use gold as money and exchange that using, you know, paper or digital uh, technology on top of it? I mean, we'll never know. Uh, And I'm not saying that this sort of unwinding would be easy. The idea of having more. Uh, uh, sovereignty at the state level, that doesn't solve the dollar, that doesn't solve the national debt, that doesn't solve uh, federal entitlements. So I'm I'm not suggesting that any of this is easy, but I'm I'm strongly suggesting that if we want to stave off what looks like a really nasty uh, inflation, what looks like a really unserviceable debt, what looks like a bunch of unpayable entitlements, Uh, and what could ultimately become a national bankruptcy or even the destruction of the US dollar, that might sound far-fetched, that might be decades up, but nonetheless, it's never gonna be easier to start addressing these problems than today. And so I guess that's why personally, I wish we weren't uh, talking about trans or the latest school shooting or something like that all day, when, when from my perspective, we have these mechanical structural problems in the country which we ought to be addressing.
0: Susan, any questions before we wrap this up? Uh, you, no. I know she had some gold, I, no, gold on I'm her good. brain.
2: <laughs> no, I, I, I still don't understand gold, like how it goes up and it, what the it, value of it is. But I get well, okay. that there's only so much of it. But are we betting on gold or are we buying gold? Or are we, you know, how do we pro- Who's I, we? we? We obviously, whoever owns it, um, we obviously don't have it. Um, I... But I just, I don't understand how the value, is it because it's supply and demand and people buy more and more of it or bet on it?
0: It's price. Just maybe you ought to talk a little well, bit about How does the price go up? Maybe That's you will talk about, about price. Well,
2: I, like people, how did it go up $300 it, this year? More it's more people certainly wanted
3: supply it. and demand. Um, and it, and yeah. it is certainly something that you should view as a safe haven. I wouldn't view it as an investment. I would view it as exchanging one form of money for another. In other words, you give up some U.S. dollars, you get some gold in return, hopefully in physical form rather than just a you know ownership in an ETF or something like that. And so, it doesn't pay dividends; it just sort of sits there. Uh, So, I wouldn't suggest going out and selling your house or putting your entire net worth into it on the idea that it's going to go up because I'm not sure that it is. But what I here's what we do know: we do know that it's never gone. Can you sell
2: it? Like, what do you do with it after you buy it? You (laughs) put it in your you're safe, and then it goes up in value. You put Can it in you your sell, safe. Sell it.
3: So you you could absolutely sell it at some point. It's it's never gone to zero in thousands and thousands of years. And and here's the thing: is almost again, almost all the gold that's ever been produced is still on Earth today. So let's say gold. Let's say we had some economic uh, crisis in America, and gold went from roughly two thousand dollars an ounce, it went to four thousand dollars an ounce, and all of a sudden people are clamoring to buy it. The uh, precious metals dealers are are, struggling to fill orders. Everybody wants gold. It keeps going up and up and up. Well, here's the thing is uh, with almost any other kind of commodity, producers would immediately rush in to fill the void and come up with a whole bunch of new uh, platinum or whatever it was that had doubled in a year. You can't do that with gold. Even in the the years of biggest production, like in the 1980s when gold went up something like 40% in one year, no matter how much the effort is put into producing more gold in the mining sense, you know, even 2%, even creating 2% of the existing supply would be a stretch. So no matter what happens to the underlying price of gold, to increase the supply of it more than, at the very most 2% a year, more likely 1% a year, is almost physically impossible. So you don't have to worry as much about the supply increasing rapidly to devalue the gold you hold You do have to worry about that with dollars or other investments.
0: Do you get that?
2: I think so. Okay. <laughs> Susan's been thinking Look, about gold
0: it, lately. It,
3: it won't so, go to zero. There's never been a there's never been a time where grandma died with a bunch of gold and left it to her kids or grandkids and they were unhappy because it was worthless. Yeah. That has never <laughs> happened. But lots lots of grandmas have died holding paper stock certificates for com- for companies that no longer exist. Worthless. That's right. that's one difference
0: well, Jeff, I appreciate you spending some time with us. It is Mises.org. What's coming up for yes. the Mises Institute? Where do you want people to go? What do you want them to read? Anything you guys are well, excited we about? Have,
3: yeah, we have events year-round. We're trying to be the canary in the coal mine here. Uh, if you go to Mises.org and go to our events page, or if you follow me on Twitter, at Jeff Dice all one word, you can keep up with everything we're doing.
0: Thank you so much, sir.
3: All right. Thank you, Dr. Derp.
0: Appreciate you being here. And for everyone else, we uh, have a full week coming up next week. Um, Susan, I believe we have uh, Michael Schellenberger in here on Tuesday. Is that correct? Susan. Yes. Yeah, Here it comes. Seven. And then Ron Johnson on the Wednesday, the 8th. Uh, I, and on the 9th, maybe we will just take some calls finally. And then
2: we have so Dave Rubin on, quite on quite the 13th. Rubin
0: coming in the following week. Jessica Yeah, Rose. the
2: 9th, we're, we're thinking... Um, Possibly Naomi Wolf. Okay. We yeah. haven't talked to her in a while and she, you know, oh. she came on.
3: uh This would oh. be the time. To, I don't know if you saw what came out during the show, but there were more Pfizer files that came out from Project Veritas specifically about, uh-huh. with recording specifically about the topics Dr. Naomi Wolf has been talking about. So this would be the time to get her on forever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So she, f- w- she
2: we were always. Issues? Okay. Yeah. We always we literally. TikTok I mean, I didn't. Her I didn't get a chance
3: didn't get a chance to watch it i just well, saw it all I, popping up during the show and it's whatever the new pfizer release right. is it just came out five minutes ago today it's during today's that. show yeah like five ten we, minutes ago we, it's trending right now in
2: the in the twitter spaces that drew's locked in for the that rest of his twitter can't 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 experience. Of, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> the other <one. laughs> yeah i don't i think i think what happened drew was you were made a host on another twitter files so yeah. you can't log out of it until they log you out so yes that seems to be right yeah so note to self is don't join a uh twitter spaces with somebody else unless you know yeah it, before a show or but, maybe i just go back
0: on there i know
2: i'm sorry <laughs> yeah you can Crazy. go back if you want i you know
0: goofy all right uh
2: that, that's that's why all of a sudden something about gender popped up in the middle <laughs> oh yeah that, that, that vocal thing.
0: well i was trying to go there in. was no
2: gender with gold <laughs>
0: yeah that's true <laughs> uh, look, and this we just did a a very light romp through economics here. The, it is a fantastically complex topic. It's like doing a light romp through medicine or something. It gets very very complicated. But uh, the Mises, I've always been fascinated by the Mises Institute and Hayek and his ideas. It seems to me that Keynesianism has been sort of an overplayed hand. I, I just seems it seems excessive. But the Chicago School people who are creating um, uh, mathematical models around economics, I mean, I'm fascinated by that because those can be Very accurate and very useful. Are they uh, telling us something? Can they be, mm, you know, are they flexible enough to be able to deal with uh, future changes and the way humans are act and behave? Because it's like trying to find a mathematical mathematical model for human behavior. It's very, very, very difficult to do that. It's it's such a complicated uh, topic. And really, these transactions that we have are really just about relationships. That's it's an. That's why people have coined the term homo economicus, really, that man ultimately at his, his or his or her core is an economic being, and that there are these relationships and exchanges of all sorts that occur uh, of an op- economic nature. And uh, as we said earlier, the three big players were Mises, Keynes, and uh, Hayek, and uh, they've held sway over the 20th century and now the 21st century. It is interesting to hear what Jeff had to say. Um I have a feeling uh, that we are more sort of bureaucratically ossified than than we know. It'd be very hard to change some of the stuff that's going on now. Uh, it'll be interesting to see one of the key things we can sort of look at is whether or not we ever do get to that 2% inflation rate. Jeff's position was no, that we'll never get there. And uh, that will be a significant change, particularly with the magnitude of the debt we have right now. So uh, as I said, I appreciate Jeff joining us. I appreciate you all being here. Sorry the Twitter spaces did not work, but... You know, that's That's the way it goes. Uh,
2: They're busy listening to Mario and your other Twitter spaces, which you can go back to if you want.
0: I might do that. So uh, again, thank you, Susan, uh, Caleb. Thank you for this week and thank you all for watching. We'll see you next time. Ta-ta. Ask Dr. Drew is produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. As a reminder, the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is intended for educational and informational purposes only.